Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Good morning. Mark 8, 27 through 35. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The word of the Lord. One of the biggest challenges in our world today is how do we talk about the things in our lives and in our world that are most wrong and painful and broken? Things like um, anxiety or trauma or abuse or violence, addiction, hopelessness, loneliness, despair. Those things have always been a problem, but it seems like they've exploded over the last generation. One of our biggest struggles is um, we're trying to grapple with the reality of those things, and yet our modern world doesn't give us the categories of the language to do it. For instance, modern science says that we can talk about brain chemistry or behavioral psychology or social maladjustment, but not evil, whether moral evil or natural evil. And it's not just modern science. Modern spirituality um, says that we can talk about illusion or false dualistic thinking, but not sin, unless we use sin as a metaphor for illusion or dualistic thinking. One of our biggest challenges is, is how do we talk about these things? Because if we can't talk about evil or sin, then how can we talk honestly about the things in our lives and in our world that are crushing us? How do we hold on to the dignity and beauty of humanity, but also the wretchedness and the darkness of humanity? Because we sense intuitively that both of those things are real, but how do we reconcile them? 
We're in a series in which we're asking the question, who is Jesus? We also just began the season of Lent, which is a time when Christians meditate on the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection, particularly with regard to all these struggles we've just been talking about. So this morning, the big question we're asking is, what does it mean to call Jesus the Christ? That word Christ is uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach uh, or Messiah, which means anointed one. Uh, The big question today is, did Jesus believe that he was the Messiah? And what does Messiah mean? Here's why this is so important for us. What if the answer to all of those biggest struggles we were just talking about, what if the answer to those things is bound up in this question of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and how we respond to that question? I know that's a big what if. Our culture scoffs at that idea. That that whole notion just sounds ludicrous to us. And yet, here's Jesus in this passage we just read, and for the first time, he's revealing his true identity, and even his own disciples find it more ludicrous and offensive than we do. What does Jesus do about that? Well, he confronts them and us with three things, and we're going to look at each one of them. Jesus confronts them with an unexpected question, an unexpected death, and an unexpected life. Okay? And we're going to look at each one of those things. First, Jesus confronts them and us with an unexpected question. One of the main themes in the Gospel of Mark is this question of Jesus' identity. So for the first eight chapters, here's Jesus, he's doing all of these miracles, and there's all this ambiguity and uncertainty about Jesus. People are literally asking the question, who is this? But then here in chapter 8, right in the middle of the gospel, Jesus has this crucial conversation with his disciples, and he raises the question of his identity. It says, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So according to popular opinion, Jesus is some kind of a prophet, which in that culture was a really big honor. It's very similar to our culture today when people say, oh, Jesus was a great teacher or Jesus was a great man. The intention is to honor Jesus. But here's the question. What do we base our opinions on? Where do we get our information? A blog? A YouTube video? A meme on social media? And where do those people get their information? It's great that we want to honor Jesus, but there's so many different opinions about him. How do we sort all of that out? Well, look at what Jesus says next. He goes on to say, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now think about what Jesus is doing here. When he says, who do you say I am, he's certainly not saying, hey, I'll be whatever you want me to be. No. Jesus is pressing his disciples to go deeper with him. He's basically saying, look, I know what public opinion says. But forget about the opinion polls. The only way you can really get to know me is if you do so personally. Friends, here's the point for this first point, and it's pretty simple. Jesus wants them to know who he is. The whole point of this conversation is to bring the disciples and us to a deeper awareness of Jesus' identity. He's saying the most important thing is to know who I am. Now that right there, if you think about that, that is remarkable. Especially if you're exploring um, faith, if you're spiritually curious or spiritually skeptical, uh, it's easy to think Christianity is just like any other religion. 
Here are the teachings. Here are the practices. Here are the rituals. Here are the rules. If you get this knowledge and do these things, then you will grow closer to God. Now, Jesus is not saying that his teachings are unimportant. Far from it. But the whole point of this conversation, this conversation is the turning point in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And what's the whole thing about? His identity. He's not saying, what do you say I teach? He's asking them, who do you say I am? Friends, this is an unexpected question because no other religious leader in history ever said anything like this. No one ever said, hey, the most important thing, the one thing you really need to know that will determine your ultimate identity and destiny in the world is you need to know who I am. No one ever said that. Not Buddha, not Moses, not Confucius, not Muhammad, none of them. In fact, they tend to say the opposite. For instance, there's a saying in Buddhism, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. The idea is that you should never give your ultimate trust and allegiance to any one individual teacher or prophet or guru, no matter how amazing they are. So for instance, in Buddhism, the most important thing is not this historical individual, Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha. The most important thing is not the teacher, but the teaching. But Jesus turns that idea on its head and says, no, the most important thing is that you, you need to know who I am. Friends, the only way that happens is if you get to know Jesus personally. And that doesn't mean that we don't also meet Jesus as part of a community. In fact, that's the norm. Look at the disciples. They are getting to know Jesus as part of a community that's gathered around him. In our modern day, that might happen as part of a church. That might happen amongst friends. The way I met Jesus was because I had friends who introduced me to him. In fact, one of the biggest problems in modern American um, Christianity is that we are so individualistic. We don't see the need for being part of a community, for being part of a church in fact, you know, I'm, listen, I'm glad that we have a live stream available for those of you who worship with us online. We're not going to stop doing this. But worshiping God all by yourself online is a far cry from what God created you for. You were created as an embodied creature to know and worship God as part of an embodied community. But here's the thing. Even though we know God, know Jesus, we meet him as part of a community, you still have to meet him personally. One of the main things Jesus is doing in this passage is he's telling the disciples, it's not enough to know me based on what other people say about me. And the same thing is true for us. It's not enough to know Jesus based on something you read on a blog or a video you saw on YouTube. You have to meet Jesus face to face. You have to listen to what he's telling you about himself. And by the way, this is just as important for those of us who call ourselves Christians. When we do new member interviews here at the church, one of the main questions we ask people is, how did you come to faith in Jesus? One of the answers we hear, not infrequently, is sometimes people will say, well, I grew up in the church. I've always been active in the church. Listen, being in church is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. In fact, being active in church is oftentimes a way of keeping Jesus at arm's length. Jesus is saying the most important thing is you need to know who I am and, and to do that you have to get to know me personally and that leads to our next point. Jesus confronts us with an unexpected question but he also confronts us with an unexpected death. 
So here's Jesus. He asks this question, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, point blank, you are the Messiah. And that word, again, is translating the Greek word Christ. It's the same word. Now, what does that mean? Well, first, uh, many people point out correctly that in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus never explicitly says, I am the Messiah. That's true. And as a result, when the rest of the New Testament calls Jesus the Christ, which it does hundreds of times, many people say, well, that's just later Christians imposing their theological agenda on Jesus. But Jesus himself never believed he was the Messiah. Is that true? If you were with us last week, we saw in the passage where the high priest is um, uh, interrogating Jesus, he asks Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers point blank, I am. In this passage, Peter says point blank, you are the Messiah. And not only does Jesus not deny it, it says Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So it's very clear Jesus did think of himself as the Messiah. The question is, what does that mean? And why would Jesus warn his disciples not to tell anyone? Well, remember what we've been learning in weeks past. Over the centuries, throughout their history, um, the people of Israel had been oppressed and they were in exile from their homeland. So throughout the Bible, there was this promise over and over again that one day God would send a king called Messiah and he would do three things. The Messiah was going to rescue them from their enemies. He was going to return them home from the exile and the Messiah would bring about a whole new world in which God's love peace, power, justice, and renewal would reign throughout the earth. That vision was known as the kingdom of God. The problem is, by the time Jesus showed up, that universal vision for the whole world had got shrunk down to a political, nationalist vision for Israel only. So whenever Peter, the disciples, or any other first century Jewish person thought about the Messiah, what they were thinking about was a military leader who would lead them into battle, crush the Romans, and restore the nation of Israel to political dominance. When Jesus tells his disciples not to tell anyone he's the Messiah, it's not because Jesus doesn't believe he's the Messiah. It's because their vision of the Messiah was way too small. It wasn't rescue and renewal for Israel only. It's rescue and renewal for the whole world. But what Jesus says next is even more incomprehensible. It says that he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This was so unexpected. Uh, it says Peter began to rebuke Jesus which is a really strong word. That's a word um, in the Gospel of Mark that's used to rebuke demons. In other words, the idea of a crucified Messiah to Peter and the rest of the disciples, that idea was, was evil and repulsive and offensive. Why? Did you know that in the ancient world there were uh, many military leaders right around the time of Jesus who staged armed messianic rebellions against Roman authority? In the ancient world, there were a lot of would-be messiahs. You know what happened to them? They all got executed. And their followers were all either rounded up or they fled into the wilderness to escape execution themselves. In other words, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as a dead messiah. If a messiah got killed, that just proved that he wasn't the messiah in the first place. And yet, here's Jesus, and not only is he 
saying he's going to suffer and die. Notice it says he must suffer. He must be killed. That word must in the Bible is a word that means divine necessity. In other words, Jesus is saying, my dear friends, yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, I have come to bring rescue and renewal for the whole world. But the only way that can happen is if I suffer and die on a cross. Friends, here's what this means for us. Um, We just saw in the first point that Jesus wants us to know who he is. Here, we're seeing that Jesus also wants us to know And I mean, he really, really wants us to know that his whole purpose for being in this world is to suffer and die on a cross. That's his whole purpose for being here. In fact, notice what it says right after this. It says he spoke plainly about this. Now, I've been thinking about this all week because this is amazing. You know why? You may be uh, aware that Jesus was famous for teaching in parables and metaphors and stories. Jesus was cryptic. Jesus oftentimes um, was very difficult to understand. As my wife Jenny once said, why does Jesus have to be so riddly? (laughs) Friends, Jesus is not being riddly here. This is one of those rare moments when he is speaking directly and plainly and clearly because Jesus does not want us to miss this. He is saying, the whole reason I came to this world was to suffer and die on a cross. That is alien and incomprehensible to most of us. It was to the ancient world and it is to us too, but he's saying, that's the whole reason I came. Friends, we're going to spend the next several weeks as we continue through this series, exploring the meaning of Jesus' death because that's not something we can talk about in just one week. It's way too big. But for this week, here's the main idea. In Jesus' day, there were all these different opinions about who he was and what he came to do. None of them knew what to do with a crucified Messiah. Friends, nothing has changed. In our modern world, there are all these different opinions about who Jesus is. He's a great teacher. He's a great religious leader. He's a a spiritual guru. He's a a revolutionary prophet. All these different ideas, none of them know what to do with a crucified Messiah. There is no place in any of those visions for the cross. The cross is just as alien and incomprehensible today as it was then. But here's Jesus, and he's telling us as plainly as possible that if you don't see the cross at the very center of who he is and what he came to do, then you are not seeing him for who he really is. And that leads to our last point. Jesus confronts us with an unexpected question. He confronts us with an unexpected death. But lastly, he confronts us with an unexpected life. Let's come back to that question we began with. How do we hold on to our dignity and beauty as human beings? And how do we talk honestly about all the things in our lives and in our world that are almost impossible to describe without uh, using words like evil and sin? In our culture, there's a narrative that says to talk about human beings as evil and sinful. Well, that's too negative about humanity. That's destructive. That's traumatizing. That leads to toxic shame. And listen, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that if you only think about yourself as a human being as evil and sinful, if that's what defines you as a human being, then yeah, that would be deeply destructive and it would lead to all kinds of distortions in your life. 
And to be honest, you know, traditional religion is one of the worst offenders in this. It makes sense why our modern world resists this language. In fact, much of modern spirituality has adopted this ancient idea that says, you know what, evil and sin is not an objective reality, it's just a subjective illusion. It says you only feel alienated from God. You only feel shame and guilt. And if you were to just meditate enough or practice enough spiritual disciplines, then you, your consciousness would evolve and you would wake up to the reality that you're already one with God. That narrative says that sin and evil is an illusion we need to transcend. And I'll admit, that narrative has a nice ring to it. But it's false eloquent. In other words, it sounds good, but it's a lie. At least according to Jesus, it's a lie. Because notice what he says at the end. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, in the Bible, there are different words for life. One of them is the Greek word bios, which means biological life. That's not the word Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses is the Greek word psyche, which is where we get our word psychology. That's a word that means the soul or the self or the inner life. That means that there is a, a true self, a, a, a unique, individual, distinct you that you were created to be. And Jesus is saying that if you um, try to save that for yourself, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for me, you'll save it forever. In other words, Jesus is saying that, that there is a unique you, a core self, a core identity, a core you that is so precious and so valuable that, that it's worth losing everything else in order to save it. Does that sound like Jesus is being negative about humanity? The opposite. That no one was more positive about humanity than Jesus, but no one is also more honest about humanity than Jesus. Because let's go back to the verse. Notice what Jesus says. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Oh, I'm sorry. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. They'll lose it. That word lose literally is a word that means to perish. Jesus is saying that our default way of being human in this world is that we are so self-absorbed and so self-focused that we're actually destroying ourselves. We're destroying that core self, that core identity that we were created to be. Being honest about that is not being negative about humanity. It's actually a radical affirmation of the goodness, beauty, and glory we were created to be. So, for instance, if you um, went to the oncologist and, and, and they told you, I am so sorry, but you have cancer and you need to go into surgery right away, would you say, hey, why are you being so negative? No. Being honest about cancer, as unpleasant as it is, is a radical affirmation of the health for which the body was created and a sign of the urgent danger that we're in because cancer is not an illusion. Or if you drive around St. Louis, you'll see all these amazing, glorious houses that are blighted and falling apart. If you look at one of those houses, do you say, what a horrible house? No. You say, what a tragedy, because that house was created for so much more. Being honest about the blight is not being negative about the house. It's a radical affirmation of the glory for which that house was created, because blight is not an illusion. Friends, the biblical vision of humanity is that every single human being is created in the image of God with inherent worth, value, dignity, beauty, and glory. But the problem is there is a rupture in our relationship with God 
Instead of um, serving God and being dependent on God, we wanted to be our own God. In fact, we wanted to be God. And every single day, every single one of us is staging little mini armed rebellions against God, trying to shove him off the throne of our heart and reign there on our own as our own Lord and Savior. Being honest about that is not being negative about humanity. It's a radical affirmation that the only way out of that is to be honest about that and to find freedom in something else. Friend, does that make sense? In other words, you know, sin and evil is, is an objective reality. It's not a subjective illusion. So think about this with me. Cancer does not define the body. It distorts the body. Blight does not define the house. It distorts the house. Friends, in the same way, sin does not define us. It distorts us. Being honest about that is not being negative. It's the cancer that's killing us. It's the blight that's ruining us. And being honest about that is not negative. It's actually the only way to freedom. Or we could say it like this. Sin is not an illusion we need to transcend. It's a reality from which we need liberation. You know what a Messiah is? A liberator. A liberator. Jesus is the liberator. Only he didn't just storm the gates of Rome. He stormed the gates of hell, the very stronghold of sin and death itself, because he's our liberator. But the way that Jesus liberates us is not by brandishing a sword, but by perishing on a cross. The reason that Peter and the disciples and the rest of the world can't make sense of a crucified Messiah is because there is nothing more negative, nothing more destructive, nothing more shameful and degrading and repulsive and excruciating and outright horrifying than being nailed naked to a cross like a bug on a board and crushed. But on the cross, Jesus took all of our sin and evil upon himself, and when he was crushed, it was crushed. But the only way that liberation can come into our lives is if we are honest about the sin and evil that's destroying our lives and give it to Jesus so that he can crush it. Here's what this looks like. Notice how Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, for the very first Christians, that, for many of them, literally meant crucifixion. And for many of our Christian brothers and sisters today throughout the globe, uh, it continues to mean persecution and oftentimes death. But for all of us, at the very least, in including those of us who live very cozily in the modern West, at the very least it means that we each go to our cross and that we give ourselves to Jesus and we let him kill the sin that's killing us. C.S. Lewis once wrote a little fable about a ghost from hell who went to visit the outskirts of heaven. And he had a little red lizard on his shoulder that was constantly whispering to him and tormenting him. But then a massive burning angel shows up and says, would you like me to make him quiet? And the ghost says, you bet I would. And the angel says, may I kill it? And the ghost kind of freaks out. He says, what do you mean? You didn't say anything about killing it. But the angel says, well, that's the only way. May I kill it? Hey, can we talk about this a little bit? Maybe we have a discussion. There is no time. May I kill it? Oh, look, he's fallen asleep now. He's not going to be any more trouble. Yes, he will. May I kill it? And by this time, the angel's getting a little closer to the ghost, and the ghost is starting to freak out. He's like, hey, back off. You're burning me. You might kill me. And the angel says, I will not kill you. But you're hurting me now. I didn't say it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. 
Finally, the ghost cries out in agony, oh, just do it, get it over with. God help me, God help me. And all of a sudden, the angel grabs the lizard, breaks its neck and flings it to the ground dead. And when that happens, the ghost is transformed into a glorious, radiant being, almost as big as the angel itself. And the lizard becomes a a silver-white stallion with a flowing golden mane and tail. And and the man leaps on top of the stallion and they gallop off into the mountains of uh, of, of deep heaven. Friends, when Jesus comes into your life, he looks at that evil that's on your shoulder, at the sin that's in your heart, and he says, may I kill it. That is going to hurt. That is going to feel like death, like a crucifixion, because it is. It's, it, we don't expect life, real life, to come into our lives that way. But it's only the death of the evil and the sin that's killing you. And the only way it comes into your life is if we're honest about the sin and the evil that's distorting the image of God in us and that we give ourselves to Jesus and let him kill the sin that's killing us. Friends, sin is not an illusion we need to transcend. It's a reality that we need liberation from. Jesus is our liberator. He's the real Messiah, and that's real liberation. Will you give yourself to Jesus and let him kill the sin that's killing you? Come face to face with him. Let him show you who he is. Let him show you who you are. And take that unexpected cross into the center of your life and and let, let Jesus give birth to that glorious being you were created to be, that radiant heaven dweller he created you to be forever. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that there is no one who is more positive about your creation, and especially your human beings that you created, than you are yourself. You are so positive about us. You love us so much that, Lord Jesus, you came to live, suffer, and die on a cross in order to raise us from the dead when you rose from the dead. And we pray even this morning, Lord, that you would um, call us forward into ever greater life, Lord, through the death that you call us to, the death of the sin and the evil that's killing us, that we may live forever with you. And even now, that we may serve you as your servants, as your messengers in this world. Father, that our lives and our church, our community, that we would bear witness to your renewal of all creation in the way we live um, in this world, Father, that we would be always putting to death the self-centered, self-focused ways of living and that we would be giving ourselves to others, Lord Jesus, just as you gave yourself to us and for us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.